0: Welcome to the fourth episode of the Ithacast. I'm Tuxling Wy
1: and I'm Seth Murtaugh. and we're here today with Eric Hathaway who's the city of Ithaca's transportation engineer. Uh, so I thought we'd start out um, just talking about your background Eric because uh, it's it's very interesting I mean you' you're an enge- a trained engineer uh, came from Portland originally and you know managed the sidewalk program for the city of Ithaca. Now you're the transportation engineer so that's <laughs> that's a quite a varied background so I thought maybe we could start with that. Sure.
2: Yeah. Well, like you mentioned, I uh, started out, so I studied civil engineering at Bucknell and I'm a licensed engineer. I have my PE stamp. And so I worked for about five years in the Philadelphia area doing mostly transportation work and then found a company I really wanted to work for on the West coast, headquartered in Portland. And so I spent uh, about five or six years there and really enjoyed it. It was a great professional experience. Like, there's some of the best experts on a lot of topics with transportation that work for that firm in that office. So I really feel like I learned a lot of technical things, but also learned a lot about just being uh, client focused. Mm-hmm. That firm is really good at being client focused. And so I think it, it helped me shape an attitude that I think I bring to, to work here at the city. Thinking about not just being an engineer, but think about the end users and, and the people that are going to benefit from what we do.
1: Well, we, we appreciate that because those end users (laughs) are our constituents. And
0: well, on that note, um, consistently I hear, and my experience, my personal experience too, communicating with you is that you're very responsive and not just responsive, but with great detail and with concern about what the people want. Um, and we'll get more into that when we talk about the sidewalk program, because there is like a huge outreach effort there. Sure. Cool.
1: So uh, about the sidewalk program, you, you, when you initially came here, you were hired, hired as the city's sidewalk manager. Uh, could So maybe say a little bit about what that work entailed.
2: Yeah, it felt like a, a new kind of challenge when I heard about the opportunity. It was a bit different than what I had been doing before, like, especially at the end in Portland, I was working on like advanced adaptive traffic signal systems and things like that. And then to do sidewalks seemed like a big, you know, a big move. Um, But it was really interesting because when I read the description, I thought this is a program that I think my skills would work well with, like thinking strategically about really asset management for the city. How much money do we have? What does it cost to do these kind of improvements? Where's the greatest need? How do we assess that? And I think a big part of the success of that was working with the GIS department at the mm-hmm. city. They're they're tremendous. And so we were really able to build a model of what's the condition of the sidewalk around the city, build a methodology for saying what's the worst and how do we get there and do those sort of things. So I feel like the first year, uh, you know, there was a there's definitely a learning curve there, but I think since that time, you know, people have seen a lot of the work being done and appreciate it. So I think it was a really well-crafted program, which I take no credit for because it was crafted before I came. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, a lot a lot of other cities call and ask, you know, how did you do this and we want to do something like it, bigger cities than us, you know, who haven't quite figured it out. And when I compare the amount of sidewalk and curb ramp. The work that we do in Ithaca compared to other cities around, it's not—it's hardly a comparison at all. It's multiple times more what we do.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is pretty incredible how much new sidewalk has been built in the city and all the sidewalks that have been repaired. Um, I mean, I hear people comment about it frequently and you can see just walking around town and i encourage people to like look at the ground as you're walking on the sidewalk and you'll see that a lot of the sidewalk is new brand new Um, and that's all a result of this the sidewalk program that that eric managed is it five
0: thousand feet roughly a year
1: yes some years it's been more
0: Uh, so a mile a year which is pretty amazing i think it's a lot that is a lot can you just describe the program, uh, how how it's funded and how, you know, the sidewalk improvement districts and everything?
2: Sure. I think part of what's really unique about it is that the way it's funded, it's not just it's not really a tax per se, you know, it's it's a benefit district mm-hmm. so that everybody pays into it, which in Ithaca is a big game changer as far as how much money the program can bring in. So that's that's really important. And it's um you know, it's leading towards something that's not really just an engineering type of issue. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a civil rights issue when you think about sidewalks, like people don't associate the two, but the Americans with Disabilities Act is very much a civil rights issue. Yep. And if you don't provide access for people of all abilities, you know, um, then you're denying access to people. So that's really, that's really important. It, so I, I didn't think I ha- I don't think I had a full appreciation of that before I started doing the sidewalk work. But as I started working with Larry Roberts and the Disability Advisory Council, mm-hmm. it was really eye-opening, and, and that was a great group to work with. I'm so glad that Larry's on the new uh, Mobility and Transportation Commission. He's, he's a great asset for the city.
1: I mean, I might just say a little bit about the history with, with sidewalks in, in Ithaca, because I remember the old, the old system at the time, I was a reporter at the Ithaca Times in 2011. I remember the fights that used to happen <laughs> at City Hall with people coming into the Board of Public Works meetings and sure. with these crazy bills from the city. I mean, it was yeah. sometimes like as much as $10,000, 11000 to fix yeah. the sidewalk outside their property. Because that's the way we used to do it is sure. that you were responsible for the, the the sidewalk that was right adjacent to your home or to your property. And so people were saddled with these enormous bills, yeah. and and I think that's what this reform really solved is it spread the costs you know more equitably across the whole the whole community, yeah. um, and also I think just created a program um, you know really targeted funding at repairing sidewalks and and building new sidewalks, and I think that's the reason we we we've seen the success that we have It's just that there was a real program that was created around this and a real effort to do it. So,
2: yeah, and I like I was talking to you about some numbers earlier. I, I don't it's been a little while since I looked at them, but I want to say the average repair cost of what we saw before when when private citizens had to fund the sidewalks was around $2,000. And when you think about uh for a single family home paying $70 a year, that's like paying 30 years uh of the right. sidewalk program right. before it would equal the average cost from before, and some of them were five digit uh cost numbers for the repairs before. So, I think that's part of the genius of the way the program was constructed.
0: I think the other interesting thing too is the fact that it is split into five districts guarantees that every part of the city gets improvements, gets to see improvements.
2: That's right. Yeah. And they all have different needs. I mean, when you think about uh, those different areas, like District Sidewalk District Five, which is more in the west side of the city, has a lot of missing sidewalk. You know, mm-hmm. so it has a different characteristic than downtown or Fall Creek, where a lot of the sidewalk is older and maybe it's chipped up, but it's there. You know, mm-hmm. so it does sort of um, give each each district a plan on how they want to go about fixing their unique problems that they have with sidewalk.
1: I mean, it's an extraordinary. I think it's a really extraordinary program. I I was talking to Savante uh, a couple weeks ago, and he said that he thought it was the single biggest thing that he's proudest of was the sidewalk reform. And it's funny because, like, you know, people don't necessarily associate it with. It's because it's not the biggest thing that you know has happened, um, you know, with under Savante's leadership. But it's. I think it's it's had such a dramatic and transformative effect on on the city, as you were saying. I think when we when we really want to encourage pedestrianism. And, you know, we're trying to con- encourage more connections between neighborhoods. Um, sidewalks are such an important part of that. So.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. And from what I heard about the old program is sometimes it was even causing interpersonal divisions in neighborhoods because people, well, your sidewalk's in bad shape. I'm going to tell the city about it, you know, and here then no, there's none of that. You can report it. And then the city can process that and right. and decide what's important. You know, you don't want neighbors uh, upset with each other over those kind of issues. No, absolutely
1: not. Yeah.
0: Another forward-looking part of the program is that if you had repaired your own sidewalk, you got credit um, into the program for you know that amount. Can you say more about that? Oh yeah, sure.
2: Yeah, up to <clears throat> up to the amount that you would pay into the program based on what type of property you own, you can get that per year. So if you you pay seventy dollars a year and you had a you know a seven hundred dollar uh, sidewalk bill from before the program or if you even chose to do it now you're you're not having to pay that fee until it equals that amount so over the next 10 years you just wouldn't pay into the sidewalk program if you had done a seven to hundred dollar repair so you're not trying to discourage people who still want to do their own work and don't want to like make them pay twice there's some other communities that i think didn't have that foresight and have had uh, problems with that but i think that people who constructed this law
1: took that into account, which, which is meaningful. Yeah. And the formula too, and you might have to remind me about it, but I remember it. So it's the homeowners pay $70 a year, but then larger apartment buildings and larger property owners are paying more because it's based on, isn't it the square footage and the the square footage and like the length of sidewalk, the square footage of the actual building and the length of sidewalk uh, in the prop that's adjacent to the property. Isn't that the, the formula?
2: That's right. Yeah, it's um it's based on the square footage and then also just your frontage because people who don't have sidewalk do still pay into the program because they might get sidewalk or might use the sidewalk in their neighborhood that that the program builds. But that's right. It's based off it's like a I think it's a $140 base fee mm-hmm. and then those two factors on top of it.
1: So the larger apartment buildings for instance are paying far more into the system than uh like a homeowner. Is that's right. Pay. Um, which I also think is kind of interesting, um, just because it's really it's it's really tied to use. Because those larger apartment buildings have, have a bigger impact on the sidewalks because they have more people in them, and those people walk in the sidewalks. So it really tries to tie the fee and the amount you're paying to the actual impact and the use, um, the, the the use of the sidewalk.
0: Are you aware of anything similar? Uh, I mean, before us, anything similar in other municipalities? I know Corvallis,
2: Oregon does something that's not exactly the same, but the same sort of principle. Um, and I did find a couple of other places that had the general idea, but I think a lot of people just can't get past the change and making the change effectively. From yeah. what I understand here, it only took about a year. You know, A task force was formed, figured out how to do it, and then just made the law. And I think a lot of places just can't seem to get through those steps yeah.
1: in a way that's... Um, I mean- I remember when that happened because I was on the task force um, and it was really, really hard to figure this out, I think, for the city. Um, I remember it being described as like the Gordian Knot Hmm. and there were a lot of councils and a lot of mayors that had tried to tackle it. And it was legitimately, for the reasons you're saying, is a really, really tough thing to, to figure out. And I think the biggest challenge was like... You know, if you put if you make it part of the the taxes, the general taxes, then you have all this tax exempt property and they're not paying into it. Mm -hmm. And like, how do you figure that out? And that was, I think, the biggest obstacle. And I got to credit our city attorney, Ari Levine, um, because he was he led the task force. He was the chair and he was really, really good at thinking creatively sure. and, and, and very innovatively, innovatively about, you know, the legal mechanisms through which this could happen and um, was able to come up with this district's idea, um, you know, where you create the, this, basically they're, they're, um, they're like utilities. It's the, you know, like a garbage fee or, um, you know, it's the, the water bill um, you're paying based on the use. Um, and that's the same principle that applies to the sidewalk program. So, I really do have to credit Ari because I think he had a huge role in that, and and you know just crafting this and and bringing it forward. So, um, so now your your role, you were doing sidewalks, and then um, now you're you're you've broadened your scope to include <laughs> to include transportation. Um, sure. So you're the transportation engineer for it's the not city. Not that you
0: brought in your scope. You did a great job, and you got promoted. <laughs> you
1: got right. I should say you got promoted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. But it's, it's a it's a bigger job. Obviously, you're looking at transportation across the city. So what are the, What are some of the things that you're doing doing now with uh, with your current job? Sure.
2: Yeah. One of the biggest things that that I spend my time doing is uh, managing some capital projects. You know, we either have projects that are funded by the city through its own capital project capital funding of capital projects, or there are also, um, sometimes we get federal dollars, you know, through the, um, metropolitan planning organization through Fernando de Argonne and and Mm -hmm. those folks. So one thing I'm doing is, is running those projects and managing them. And often we'll have a consultant who's doing the design on those works. And so I'm uh, financially managing the project And also providing input on the plans and letting them know what's the context of what we're trying to do, running public meetings to make sure people are aware. So a couple of those that are going on right now, the Five Corners intersection, is one that right now is in the stage. We have a design consultant and they're doing some traffic analysis and they're doing some preliminary design work. So we should have a few options to look at in the coming month or so. Mm. And then once we have that and we've refined it enough, we'll take that to a public meeting and get people's input on that. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people, especially with the Maplewood development, you know, now will be constructed recognize that that's a really important connection piece from a pedestrian yeah. and from a vehicular standpoint. So I'd, I'll be really happy to see an improvement there maybe as soon as even next year. Wow. Um, yeah, cause right now is the capital project season where we're putting in requests and that's when I'll be putting in a request for, for next year to, to have that construction wow. funded. That would be huge. Yeah, that, that definitely would be, um, if I had a list of priorities for myself, that would be one that's of the one, highest ones one in one the one city. Yeah um Elmira Road is one that's not funded as a city project well it's partially it's about 20% funded by the city but it's essentially a repaving Um, project. Route 13 is interesting because most of it's owned by the state, but south of Elmira Road, we do own and operate that as a city. So this project is to... Oh,
1: I didn't know that. I actually didn't know that
0: either.
2: I I thought I would bring that up in this podcast too because a lot of people might not know certain parts of the roadway system are owned by the state and and some by us. And I don't understand all the history of that. Some of it's a little bit complicated, but um, but this project would repave that section of, of roadway and then upgrade the two traffic signals that are along the there. So, so this is
1: a section of Route 13 that's actually, is it owned by the city or is it just managed yes. by the city? Oh,
2: Yeah, wow. it's actually owned. At, yeah, because it is an interesting distinction. Even though the city or the the state owns those northern sections of Route 13, we are still responsible for some routine maintenance mm. of mm-hmm. those sections. Yeah. And, uh-huh. and the other area of the city that's owned by the state is Route 79, so Green Street and, right. and Seneca Street.
0: Since you brought it up, I hear all the time people are very irritated by the light timing on route 13 there that's controlled by the state though right we cannot change the light timing
2: right for most of the intersections we can't i think i i hear less complaints about the area like down spencer road and and commercial avenue though there are some things with commercial avenue but no in the in the area where it's a one-way couplet is all owned and operated by the state everything there and to the north right and so you know, we we try to communicate there and, and Tim had a good relationship with them, my predecessor, and I've really tried to reach out and, you know, establish, keep that relationship going so that we can offer some suggestions. And we're yeah. currently in some conversations with them, maybe possibly towards projects that could help them to manage that corridor mm-hmm. more effectively because – the DOT that's responsible, the office that's responsible for this is in Syracuse. And that's, right. that's a little bit far away You know, when you have everyday kind of issues. So we've talked about the idea of getting some cameras that could help them observe traffic conditions and respond to them a little bit better. And so in the next next week, I'm supposed to talk with some of their staff about... Some of these things we call them PTZ cameras, pan, tilt, zoom cameras. So they're not even just static in their positioning. You can move them around and look oh, wow. at different. Yeah, remotely you can move them around. We use them in Portland. They're, you can see a good long way with them, and and they really can be an effective tool.
1: I mean, do you have any uh, like thoughts about just the the general kind of future of of Route 13 and and from a planning perspective? Because I mean, one of the things that I've often heard people complain about. Um, is that it really divides the city? Mm. It's like a psychological boundary, especially if you're if you're a pedestrian or, or if you're bicycling. I mean, to cross Route 13 is like <laughs> right. it feels like it's longer than farther than it actually is. And it's I true. think um, we've had some conversations, like I think at very very much at a conceptual stage of just what can we do, you know, to make. Route 13 kind of knit those neighborhoods back together and just make it like more appealing and more kind of pedestrian friendly. And
0: I know the county wants to do something with the state too, like studying that corridor. Yeah. They
1: do, yeah.
2: Tim and I met with them during the wintertime, some folks from the county legislature. And, and it, there does seem to be some momentum there, I feel like, in a way that maybe I haven't felt it before. Mm-hmm. So I'm hopeful that, that there could be some improvements. I mean, it's a couple different scales. Like you said, could the nature of the roadway itself be be changed through some design changes. That's that's a large long-scale project to do something like that, but yeah. it's been done other places, you know, how do you still effectively move traffic but make it a more friendly environment for people of of all that are, you know, biking, walking, whatever yeah. to get where they want to go and not feel like they're divided by this, you know, fairly large especially the one-way couplet section there. So I don't think anything is not on the table when it comes to that. But then there's also just sort of the daily idea of the existing system itself, how well does it work? And I do hear the frustrations from people about the signal timing there. Um, And so that's one other technology that I want to engage the state on there is there's some simple, um, some simpler things that can help. There's like a GPS based clock that can go, the controller, if you think of the traffic signal, there's, you know, you see the big metal box on the sides, usually on a pole or near it. And inside is the brains of the operation, the, the controller. And you can actually get these clocks that go on there. They're not terribly expensive. And it helps to reset that clock because weather can, cha- weather change in all kinds of conditions, power surges can make the clock in that controller off. And a lot of what's happening with how traffic is supposed to progress is based on everyone being on the same page in the same time. Hmm. So if you're like four seconds off, that's a really big deal and you're going to feel that. Oh. And I've heard some people say, hey, I, I think the state did something because the timing seems to be working better. Hmm. But then a couple months later, it's not. So that tells me... That it could be something like the GPS clocks, maybe could help with an issue like that. Maybe that they have a pretty good idea of what the timing should be, but then the equipment is is not doing everything it could. It could be right. So we're trying to engage them on that conversation. They're spread pretty thin. You know, they're trying right. to do a lot of work. They've they have a whole region to cover. cover. Yeah. But they they've been pretty responsive to me when I ask
0: them questions. So I think anyone who knows me knows I have a very strong bias towards pedestrian and cycling issues because I pretty much only walk and bike around the city. And I know that's true of Seth, too. It's a thoroughfare because for a lot of routes, people have to traverse through the city. They're forced to because we don't have highways or bypasses. Sure. You know, do you have thoughts on how you balance the demands of people like me who want a more complete street versus the fact, the reality that 13 is, in fact, a thoroughfare?
2: Sure. Well, I think
0: there are some...
2: So that, like I so said, there's some larger scale, long-term things where you could rethink the corridor in itself. But even in the meantime, there's some other practical things. Like I, I hear from cyclists who, especially maybe on Buffalo Street coming up to Route 13, the way that the state, and I, hopefully my colleagues at the state won't listen to this say, are blaming us for everything. <laughs> right. But it's not that, you know, I think they're doing the best they can. But at a state level, you know, if you think about the way departments of transportation work, you know, they have this um, things that they can and can't do. And the DOT has a mindset in general out of Albany, I believe that, um, the loops are the way to do detection. You know, you see those loops in the roadway, they're inductive loops. It measures, measures metal basically that, um, that affects the inductive loops. So it knows somebody's there. Well, it doesn't work very well for bicyclists or bicycles, Mm -hmm. you know, so there are some other means of detection to do, Uh, But the state doesn't really use those sort of means. And so I think that's one thing that could go a long way is just as a bicyclist, know that you're being detected, Mm -hmm. um, which isn't really happening at a lot of places on 13 right now.
0: My admission is that I just hit the pedestrian button. Sure. Yeah.
2: And that's one way, but it it doesn't have to be that way. And so, I mean, that's a, it can be a fairly sizable investment to change the way you're doing it. But,
1: you know, it's pretty important to give everybody an opportunity to be heard um, to Duck's point, though, you know, I know you just came back from the Netherlands, Duck, In the Netherlands, you know, you see bikes everywhere, and it's like you see more bikes than almost more bikes than cars or, or, or people walking, and and it's just it's a very accepted mode of transportation, and um, you know, I wonder, in thinking about you know how to make Ithaca more friendly and more welcoming to bicycles. What can we do? Like, what kind of infrastructure improvements can we do do here? Because um, if you actually look at the number of people who, like, for for instance, like commute to work on a, on a bike, it's very low in Ithaca. I mean, there's a we're it's a big walking. 2%. It's two percent. We're a big walking city. A lot of people walk. I think we have really high levels of, really of people high. who commute to work by by walking. But biking is really low, and I think one of the reasons it's so low is that it's.
0: Not very safe feeling. Cheating. Feeling. I Steph think, has think even told me that he does not feel safe on a bike. I mean, like I've done it a couple times. <laughs> I, you know, the
1: line bikes are great. I, I've sure. ridden the ro- line bikes around a couple times, but I,
0: I yeah, I, I don't necessarily
1: feel like super safe sure. around the streets sure. here. I got to admit it. You know, it's like, it's mm. not always the, the friendliest. And like, one of the reasons is that. You know, traffic is heavy in some of the streets. and um you It's know, not just, the,
0: like, the safety, but the culture. So, like, the yeah. first day I got back from the Netherlands, I hop on a bike like I always do, and then someone, like, yells at me for being in the road. So, mm-hmm. like, it's just an unfriendly culture. It's kind of, yeah. That, <laughs> and I
1: sense that from, from drivers, you know. And, you know, I walk a lot, and I, I don't want to, like, be really negative towards people who drive cars. But I do sense that there's, like, people get kind of annoyed if you're riding a bike in the street. They're like, you know, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why we don't see more people biking. It's just, there's just a feeling that one, the infrastructure doesn't really support it. And two, like the culture, like Duck's saying, it's like, it's not. So what are some things that we can do to just make it more friendly? Cause I think it would be great if we had, you know, those numbers. I mean, in Copenhagen, I was reading this article and it's like 60% of the people in Copenhagen are commuting to work on bikes. That means that like, Bankers and suits are like riding bikes. I mean, that's unbelievable. And it's like I just—I wonder what what would have to change to make the city more more friendly to biking. Well, that's a pretty large scale
2: question. It is. I'm sorry. I'll (laughs) I'll try my best. But um, you want another beer? Right. (laughs) There's there's a couple of things. I mean, the cultural aspect. As an engineer, you know, you hate to admit it, but engineering isn't the only solution to a lot of problems, and cultural shift can be part of that. Uh, changing the environment of the street is one thing, too. I think two things that Bike Walk Tompkins is trying to do right now that I think they're collecting some pretty important information. They're doing a statistically significant phone survey to ask people, essentially, what would it take to get you on a bike? You know, what are the barriers that you're facing? Because that's sort of different for every community. There's Within the field that I am in, um, there's sort of this famous study that was done in Portland by some people that I used to work with there Uh, about identifying different groups of cyclists. And you guys are probably familiar with the study. There's sort of like a one to 3% that would bike no matter what facility you give them. Mm -hmm. They're going to bike and they feel very confident. And then there's some people, maybe 15%, who just either they're not able to to ride a bike, you know, for a physical reason, or they just, nothing would make that person feel safe. And then there's this large, like 60% of the population that would like to, but doesn't feel empowered to bike for any number of reasons. So I think the first step is, the things that bike walk Tompkins is doing. Right. Okay, let's find out why because yeah. it could be any number of reasons. So then let's focus on on those issues instead mm-hmm. of, you know, guessing. There's some part of what I like about working at a city is thinking comprehensively about the whole network that's mm-hmm. there. And yeah. so I think there are some things that we can do and I've tried to even engage some some Cornell planning and engineering students as projects to look at some of these things. How can we assess the facilities we have and see where they're most efficient so that we can address those things first. I think the other thing Bike Walk Tompkins is doing is to work on a bike blueprint. You know, Mm -hmm. they've got some money and funding to do that. So I think they're thinking the right way about strategic ways to identify how do we get people so that they feel like they can get on a bike and get to where they need to go. Those are the first steps, I would say. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's tough too because let's say that data shows that people want bike lanes. It doesn't mean we start putting in bike lanes because as I'm sure you've encountered when you propose removing parking to put in bike lanes, you get an earful from the community.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've I've seen you at the the ILPC meeting talking about putting the bike lane out there on University Ave. I mean, those those discussions can be can be pretty intense, you know, and they, and they can generate a lot of neighbor controversy. It's true. I feel like initially with with the University
2: Avenue project, when we did the public meeting, it was about a year ago. You're right. I I did anticipate that that question coming up, and I, I remember Duxon, you were there at the. Uh, at the public meeting. And so I knew ahead of time that, okay, we're proposing an uphill bike lane that which is going to reduce, would reduce parking in the area. We looked at a few different options, but that was one. And so we took a lot of time to identify, okay, what is the parking demand along University Avenue, not only there, but also in the University Avenue parking lot that's just to the east of University Ave, and also over on Stewart Avenue and took a lot of time to You know, at the night, during the daytime, you know, at all different times of day, what is the demand in all three of those locations? And if you lost the amount of parking that this would require, could could those vehicles go somewhere else? Mm -hmm. And the answer was yes. Even during the worst time, you would have 20 to 25 open spaces somewhere if those trips were if they were to go over to Stewart Ave, which presumably if you're commuting over to Cornell, might even be a bit closer. But the difference right now is, of course, it's free to park on the east side of University Ave. Mm -hmm whereas on on Stewart Ave, it's not. And and in the University Avenue parking lot, it's not. So those are the kind of things we really try to think about as we approach a project, just to give people all the information. And I felt like a lot of the neighbors that were at that meeting appreciated that and felt a little bit less apprehensive about the idea of losing parking. We also talked about the idea of the parking that is there going towards a residential parking permit system so that it could be better used by the residents um, and so they might not feel the loss quite as much. Yeah. But I know, and it helps when, you know, we proposed the uphill bike lane there. Uh, TCAT's very much in favor of it. A lot of people, and it felt like people at the public meeting were overwhelmingly in favor of it. So that felt really gratifying. But mm-hmm. we did really try to do our homework. You're right. Parking is, that's always yeah. the conflict. And that's why it's important, I think, to be strategic about where do we need these facilities the most. Because right. we also do need on-street parking for people. Right. You yeah. know, and so so we just have to be smart about it. And yeah. I feel like most people, if you present the overall picture and the impact, they'll respond well
0: to it. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's it's come up like every, every time that I can remember since I've been on cons- council, where a bike lane is proposed, like parking seems to be the predominant. Tioga
0: Street was like the last. Tioga was Street huge was
1: one. a huge one. Cayuga Street was a huge one. Great. When you are dealing with these competing interests, right? You know, like you, we need people, we need on street parking, but we also want to create more opportunities for for bicycling. Um,
2: and there are some other ways, you know, we're talking a lot about using the right of way and how we assign it. And that's really important, but there are some other ways too, to, um, make people, I think that are cyclists feel safe. You know, we're, we're experimenting right now with some detection, um, that's not been used in the city before. It's something that's been used a lot of other places. And even the work I did in Portland, which is a video based detection, which can actually differentiate between cars and bicyclists. You know That's, that's something that a, a loop can't do and a lot of other types of detection can't do. Yeah, so there's a lot that could be done with that just to make things more efficient for a bicyclist. And I think a lot of frustration that bicyclists feel as they get to the intersection, they know they're not being detected, and so they they feel kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. But if they knew that they were being detected and that they were going to get at least equal treatment yeah. to a vehicle— then that might encourage people to feel like it'd be a rest, a less frustrating experience. I don't think it yeah. speaks as much to the safety issue that we were talking about, but from the overall like experience, I think that is something important. Yeah. And even just for everybody, something I'm really passionate about is the traffic signal system itself. And we're in the middle of, we've just gotten some new traffic signal controllers. Some of the other ones are, were older and didn't have the ability to do some of the things I'd like to do. And so you know, the idea of getting things really synchronized, really moving in a good progression at a reasonable speed makes the, the interaction between cyclists, pedestrians, and motorists a little bit more harmonious.
0: So speaking of signals, a couple years ago, someone from uh, the American League of Cyclists or Bicyclists came to Ithaca to evaluate us for whether we were a bike-friendly city. We ended up getting the Browns, by the way. And one of his comments were that you shouldn't have to press a button to get the walk signal. It should always just display a walk signal. And I asked you about that. And you gave a great response as to why we have it set up that way. Can you remind me what that reason is?
2: When you work for a city, you start to realize there's always so much behind the answer to every question. It's like, there's there's so many different factors come into play. But one of the reasons why we have push buttons at intersections is actually back to an issue I mentioned earlier, which is about Americans with Disabilities Act, is that the vibro tactile nature of pushing these buttons and it gives you an indication. It says walk or don't walk Mm -hmm. is for people who have different impairments. And so we have them there, even sometimes regardless of whether or not that push button is to give you a walk signal because the verbal indicator is built within that Mm -hmm, push button system. Right. So there's, there's kind of two aspects to it, but it's, it is interesting. And I've read articles from people like on city lab or other websites where people criticize um, cities putting in push buttons and say, well, you know, uh, a car doesn't have to push a button to, you know, it's in a passive way, it's being detected. Mm-hmm. If you think about like lower demand times during the day, if you have what's called ped recall on, which is, so that means that the, the walk signal comes up every time on every approach, regardless of whether somebody there that needs it, it's going to program a walk time of about, you know, seven to 10 seconds And then it's going to program a flash don't walk time to count Mm -hmm. down for like, you know, 10 or 15 seconds and then the yellow and then the red. And then it changes to the other approach. Mm -hmm. If depending on the demand, if it's a super high demand time of day, it's going to work the same as it would today. No matter how many people are there, it's always going to come up. Right. But other times of the day when it doesn't come up as often, you could actually experience less delay as a pedestrian by pushing the button because maybe if no one pushed the other button for the other street, you don't have to wait for the walk time, the flash don't walk time and everything right. before oh, your walk comes that's up. Really you could push it and it could come up. Huh. It could, it could end the green time on the other and within five seconds come back to you. So that's all the engineering that goes into this. And, and there's ways to model all of this and optimize it through some software. And so that's the direction that I, that I want to go is just make this one of the things I'm really passionate about. Why the, one of the reasons I do what I do is I like the idea of optimizing, you know, yeah. a whole system. And so, You know, we actually just applied for a grant um, a couple months ago that I'm really hopeful we will get through the state. I think we really made a a strong case. It's specifically for pedestrians, this grant, for things Mm -hmm. that would make pedestrians safer. And one of the things I asked for, I said, number one, anywhere where we don't have the pedestrian signal head, Mm -hmm. we need them. Yeah. So that's what we want first. And if we don't have push buttons somewhere, we also need those because people with disabilities who have certain impairments need those signs. So those yeah. are the first things we want. And we ask for some other things, too. And those also happen to be the really expensive things that are hard to fund. And so, of course, yeah. that's, you know, that's what I said. This is our number one priority. If you're going to give us money for anything, please this. And so I really hope that we get that because that can help complete the system. You know, Kent Johnson, who works with me, he ran a really successful project to get more of the countdown timers, which are a proven safety countermeasure for pedestrians, Mm -hmm. and the push buttons, and he did a really nice job with that. But there's still some gaps in the system. So this would basically complete that and give me the ability to be more sophisticated about the way that we program the traffic signals in general.
0: As little as Seth and I drive, we should not ignore the fact that people demand better streets. And when I do drive, I have to, or bike for that matter, I have to acknowledge there are a whole lot of potholes. Yeah. So what's the state of our streets and uh, and how, how's the city tackling this persistent pothole issue?
2: Sure. Well, a lot of that falls under streets and facilities. And I'm always happy to like bring them into the picture on this because the you know specifically with potholes that is something that they do and I would always encourage people you can go to the web their website and literally just report it and I've, I've heard that the turnaround time is is pretty good on that for for fixing potholes and then they've just brought on within about a year ago Mark Verbanic um, who's do, who's really thinking about these sort of things strategically about a cycle of Repaving the roads and which ones need to go first, and how do we really strategically approach this? Again, like a lot of other things, there's other factors. Where are water and sewer having to rip up roads anyway? Yeah. So we are going to need to mill and pave those roads anyway. So there's yeah. there's a bit of that, um, but also trying to think a little bit beyond it and using other ways to fix the roadways. You know, maybe some more sealing of roadways instead of total resurfacing or total reconstruction, like Albany Street. For a couple of blocks is going to have a reconstruction this year because the road is just in that sort of condition yeah, that these, it needs it. street is you rough, know. <laughs> but other places, if you know, one of the biggest things that can that can deteriorate a roadway is poor drainage, mm-hmm. and so and once you start to get cracks and the water gets in there, you, know, you get the freeze and thaw, and then you've got bigger issues. But if you can yeah. prevent that earlier on, you save yourself much more money down the road. So I think Mark is is doing a really good job at adding some expertise in that area. Yeah. So I think that will be a long term improvement, and yep. I know Mike Thorne, the superintendent, has been really, you know, aggressive about trying to get on that that issue of of making sure the pavement condition all around the city. Yeah, definitely, is good. So I I really give him a lot of credit for that.
1: I mean, it's a, it's a it's a, i hear it all the time about the potholes and it's it's funny because it sometimes comes up from surprising sources like when we were having lunch with the fire department they were like when are you gonna pave south albany street it's like <laughs> unbelievable like it's said but so you forget that it's not just you know it's not motorists it's also like emergency vehicles and and tcat and there's a lot there's a lot of there's a lot of uh different uh groups that are affected when you know the roads are are in bad shape you know so i definitely think it's something that we need to to focus on and What about so I know that um, the traffic calming program is something that the city has recently invested in and um, we're starting to see some results from that. So that's that's something you've been working on, too, like, um, you know, really trying to encourage uh, traffic calming measures and and slow down speeds in in neighborhoods. Um, So maybe say a little bit about that.
2: Sure. Yeah. And it's a fairly new program. And actually I'll put a plug in right now. We just put out a request for new projects. If people have traffic calming areas, they want to see some improvements done. You go to the city website. If you just Google basically city of Ithaca traffic calming, you'll get to the to the right place. We need to get get the request, go evaluate it while the weather is good enough to put tube counts out, look at the speeds, all those sort of things. And then over the winter, do some design to get ready to build it next year. So we try to we try to get those requests early in the season. Like now, we are now looking at um, implementing some of last year's requests. Mm. And the thing, one thing I'm excited about with the city, you know, we're trying to find new ways. I come from the consulting world; that's my background. You know, consultants are expensive, um, and so what we're trying to do is to do a little bit more some more in-house work. And we've actually invested in some surveying equipment that uh, Mark Verbanek, who I mentioned before, and John LaCitra, who now manages the sidewalk program, they're using that to do some of the simpler design in-house. And yeah. I think that can help us to do more projects, you know, make the money with the traffic calming program, go further. Yeah. Um, it, the more we communicate within departments and do those sort of things, the better. Like, with the traffic calming program, one of the keys is once we identified some places we wanted to work and how we wanted to go about it, I organized a meeting with the with the fire department and mm-hmm. with streets and facilities and said, okay, these things are, are going to really affect you, your ability to respond to emergencies and your ability to clear snow from the roadway. So I yeah. need to know what's acceptable to you right. that I can do. What are the parameters I'm working with? Like what streets are your primary emergency response yeah. routes? Um, and how high can we, can we go when we do a bulb out? How does that affect your ability to clear snow? So we had a lot of conversations about that. And I think we got to a good place and an understanding. And so now we have some, some places we're going to go, but, but part of the outreach too, and and the way that can be like synergistic to, to do this kind of work is Hancock street is a place that's. Um, supposed to be mill and pave this year. I think it's one of their first projects that, yeah, that they're going go to do. Neighbors are very they're excited right, about this. That's the big right. Event. And so by pulling in streets and facilities into this conversation about traffic calming, we realized, okay, you're going to be there we have a, a speed hump that we wanted to do in this area. Can you do that while you're out there? That way yeah. we don't have to put it out to a separate contract, and it saves us a lot of money. Right. So the, like a lot of things, communication is the key, and I yep. feel like now everybody's on board. And so, That's great. So Mark's doing a great job. You know, He's volunteered to do that work. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think I'd like to see some more requests come in for next year, and I think... You know, there's. I would invite people to think creatively too. That um, traffic calming isn't just speed humps. I think that's definitely one way to do it. Yeah. Um, but there's there's other ways to do it that we're going to try to look at. And part of it is even just psychologically. Like Hancock Street's, I think, a good example. It's one of the first requests that we got. Mm-hmm. And if you come off of Route 13 previously, you look down and it's just a sea of asphalt with no markings. You know, it, it's not easy to to say to yourself there are intersections down here. There are people I need to think yeah, about. Right, right. But even the psychological effect of putting some pedestrian signage in, and then yeah. putting some some crosswalks and things like that in, I think that's made some difference. Yeah. And you couple that with other measures, and and it can be pretty effective. And I
1: gotta say, like I've been really impressed with your responsiveness on these issues because I know the neighbors. I remember that you sure, actually we came down up. and met up, and we like looked at the intersections. And yeah. and I know that our constituents like really appreciate that. You know, when they have an issue or a complaint about traffic speeds in a neighborhood and they they email their council person or they email email a city staff member and then they show up and they're like they're right there on your block and they're looking at it and they're and then th- and then something happens <laughs> i mean that's why i think it's been it's been pretty impressive to see how this traffic calming program is I unfolded it.
0: i think because you require that you specify the problem and you collect signatures from your neighbors yeah it's like the process the fact that there is a process. There's a process. Yeah. Show, the, like Exactly. It, it makes them feel confident that here's the evidence yeah. and that the city will act upon it. Um, so speaking of different ways of traffic calming, sure. what's the difference between a speed hump, a speed table, and any other options you can think of? All
2: right. Yeah, there are so many different terminologies there. A speed bump is almost like, I would think a speed bump is sort of like what you have maybe at the Green Star parking lot, the West End, where it's something that's pretty abrupt. It's not like going to be on a city street for the most part. Yeah. And then a speed hump is more like something that's a little bit more gradual that's appropriate for like a city street. And then Day Street is sort of like a raised intersection, which is the same general idea, but the crosswalk is, or that's like a raised crosswalk. And then on Buffalo Street, you have some raised intersections. So the same, the idea is the same, just that there's a vertical Deflection there. Yeah, so, and there's even, you know, there's even a speed lump, which sounds kind of funny, but it's something that's done in less snowy climates where you can actually put um, openings in the speed hump that are roughly the size of emergency response vehicles, their wheelbase, oh, so that they don't have to slow. That's amazing. But there's a lot of issues with that in it. like wow. It's very difficult to clear snow from that yeah. because the snow is going to get stuck right. in the middle, it's and that creates problems. That's interesting, though, because yeah. that's
1: one of the biggest complaints, right, is from the emergency vehicles? And sure. They,
0: yeah.
2: So there's a lot of different things out there, uh, a lot of different names. But, yeah. um, you know, the key is we try to do you know, as low cost solutions as we can that are effective, but some yeah. of them are going to be higher cost things. And that's, that's okay. Yeah. We just have to be strategic about
1: it. Yeah. I mean, so like you said, you put in the plug for the 2019 program. I mean, we, I think we we're invested in continuing this. And and I think that, you know, if this is funded year after year, you start to see some real improvements around the city. Sure. So.
2: No, I think, I think so. And I think based on the request that came in the first year, I do think we are going to address Every location in one way or another.
1: It just looks different in different places. Yeah. And it takes time too. And I think that's what you have to kind of manage expectations and Mm -hmm. be like, hey, we're working on this. It might take a year or two to actually do it, but, you know, it's, we're going to, we're working on it and we're going to get it done.
2: Yeah. Doing it in a thoughtful way, I think just pays dividends. It takes a little bit longer up front. And I just have to give Kent Johnson from Office a lot of credit. He's really taken a lot of this on and he's just, used a really thoughtful approach because he's taken the requests and thought about them in the context of their neighborhood beyond even what's being asked for and to say, okay, but how does this play into other issues and how is it going to affect other streets? He just has a real talent for that. And so I've really been pleased with the way that that's come together.
0: Well, I was going to mention some really great things that I've gotten excellent feedback on, which is new stop signs on Hancock to slow things down now that there's a big new housing development there. Huge appreciation for the stop signs by Gimme Coffee at sure. Cascadillo and Cayuga because that was a, an intersection where, for whatever reason, cars refused to stop for pedestrians. Mm. Now that they're forced to stop, I feel much safer crossing the street there.
1: That intersection, I remember back in it was like 2012. There was an accident there, and the the Gimme staff, the staff at Gimme Coffee, had been calling for improvements to that intersection for literally years. Uh, and I'm, I'm so glad that we were able to redo the intersection, but I think mo- the biggest difference of all was that far away stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has had a transformational, transformational impact on that intersection. I mean, just for pedestrians, but I also think, you know, like the staff at gimme, I mean, they, they watch it, you know, sure. <laughs> like you talk to them, they're like, cause they see it all day long. And it's like, they, they've seen some like pretty nerve wracking things there where people would like fly through that intersection. And I think slowing the traffic down at that that intersection, just making it safer for pedestrians, really has had a huge impact.
0: Huge win. And as far as I can tell, the cars are no more backed up than they used to be. I think it's been flowing pretty well.
1: I feel like we get requests, and sometimes the requests might be impractical. But in this case, the request for a four-way stop, I mean, like you said, you got a lot of things that you have to weigh that the average constituent who's making a call to their council person or whatever doesn't – maybe doesn't even realize because like you're looking at – you're not only looking at – that, that intersection and how the pedestrians are crossing the intersection. You're looking at the traffic flow, That's all right. the different pa- transportation patterns. Right. And I think weighing all that and then even making the decision to move forward with it is, is impressive. And I think it's, it's definitely, it was a good decision because I think what you're seeing is like the public. I think universally is that, that it's like an improvement there. So
2: Yeah, I've gotten very little negative feedback there, mostly positive. The biggest factor at that intersection was just the way that the bridge deck is right. at the northwest corner there, yeah. is that looking to the north was really difficult. Yep. And so doing the all-way stop really helped that issue, it was really yeah. the only way to deal with that issue. If it wasn't for that, I probably would have at least tried some other ways to slow traffic on Kyuga Street or to make drivers more aware of pedestrians before I would have gone to the always stop. Yeah. But it, it's just such an overt, um, unique location because of that bridge. Yeah. Um, so anyway, not to downplay what I did or the reasons that I did it, but I, I, I don't think, I guess that one thing I should say about traffic calming, because it's something if, if you read about it and the theory behind it and what communities face and transportation issues, um, transportation engineers' least favorite topic sometimes is always stops because... Yeah. And I I feel uh, bad sometimes telling people they request traffic calming and they say, I really want an all-way stop. And I have to step back and say, well, actually, an all stop is not really traffic calming. We wouldn't use it for the for the purpose of traffic calming because what that can do sometimes if it's not appropriate based on the balance or other issues, it can just make someone more aggravated. So later down the street, they're speeding. So maybe they're not speeding there, but they're speeding somewhere else. Yeah. So we just have to be very thoughtful about the way that we think about the, the impacts of it. So I wouldn't consider putting stop signs in a traffic calming, but I do think it was appropriate there based on the circumstances. Yeah. Work that well.
1: So I've got to ask you too about the um, parking because, like, parking is a huge issue in the city. Obviously, and everything that's gone on with our, our parking garages, and I know that this is not necessarily your your wheelhouse, but it's like we have a parking director position. But just I was wondering if you have any thoughts in the ways that, like, parking in the parking garages and all the, the different improvements that have been introduced with the parking kiosks and everything. How does that impact transportation in in your mind? Like overall, do you see that? Is there a connection between like what you do and, and you know, how we manage parking in the city? There's a strong connection.
2: I mean, it's, um, they're really one issue. I think when you think about them, like, like we talked about earlier, biking and parking are always going to be interconnected. And even the way, especially as we move towards the future with parking garages and the way that our transportation system and its needs are going to change. If we don't, the, the strategies and that we use towards our parking garages, towards on-street parking, are going to directly influence people driving in cars, right. public transit, yeah. to a huge extent. Yeah. Um, you just can't overplay the the connectedness of those two issues. So we have to be very smart in the coming years about those decisions we make because parking garages are very expensive.
1: Hugely expensive. Um, We're having
2: those conversations at common council right
1: now about the green street garage. Yeah,
2: but people have to get to work and they have to shop downtown and there's got to be a way to do that in a convenient way. So we have to just be smart. And I've talked to some other communities about parking issues like that because they are related to what I do and have tried to glean some information about, okay, how are you, are you trying to break even? Are you trying to actually make money on parking? Yeah. Like what are your maintenance needs? Talking to people that are in different types of climates, ones that are similar or different from us. So yeah, I I would definitely say that, you know, parking is, it's not a issue that seems like overly exciting, but Mm -hmm. it's incredibly important and will really dictate in so many ways how successful we are as a city and how vibrant, our downtown
1: is. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts? And, um, I know that the downtown Ithaca Alliance has been working on the transportation demand management program. Um, do you have any thoughts about that and how that might impact the city? So transportation demand management is, is managing not the, the supply side of parking, but the, the the demand side, and trying to reduce the demand for for driving in cars, and um, you know, you, trying to encourage people to use public transportation or try to bicycle to work. I mean, do you have any thoughts about that? About um, transportation demand management?
2: Yeah, I do. I mean, I've talked with. There's a transportation consulting firm who does a lot of the transportation analysis for the studies that we see when we review site plan review and other things. And had an extended conversation with them recently about about that topic. And they've seen some communities really have success with it. I mean, that's a really big effort to try to change, you know, patterns or give people options that they didn't have before. Mm -hmm. So much of it has to do with your employer and working with businesses. There's, there's so much outreach to, to even quantify what, what potential is there for change or what, how could we better serve people? But yeah, it's, it's really, again, it's where engineering, obviously I think engineering is meaningful and it's important and can have an influence, but to a certain extent, if you have a system that's over capacity, the only thing you can do is find smarter ways to get people places and yeah. to offset some of that demand. And so, you know, route 13, maybe is an example, I think it could be more efficient than it is and we can get yeah. more out of it. But at a certain point, whether it's now or in the future, you have to find a way to give people the options that will just have some less cars on the roadway if possible. Right. And that's going to make it better for everybody to, to move through.
0: I mean, I sit on the TCAT board and we are dealing with severe traffic issues. And so one of the things that TCAT staff is exploring and got some money to explore is signal prioritization. And I think that can jive with, um, emergency services too, sure. where if a fire truck or a TCAT bus is approaching a traffic light that's currently red, they can, you know, cause it to turn green.
2: That's a really amazing technology. And it's been in use, it's a proven technology that we used in Portland quite a lot. And I did some studies on evaluating the effectiveness of it. And the systems that we had in Portland um, was even not even as sophisticated as what's available today. So I'm excited to know, and I've had some conversations with TCAT about that, the possibilities of doing it. Because really a transit signal priority system is something that is Fairly seamless. You're taking, you're manipulating just a small amount of the green allocation at an intersection, but you're you're paying big dividends for moving public transit more efficiently, or moving um, emergency vehicles more efficiently, or allowing uh, trucks uh, that are uh, that are plowing the roadways to efficiently move through and get all greens. You can do that with a transit signal priority and doing that in the early morning. It's very feasible, has very little impact on the rest of traffic. So the possibilities in what you do with transit signal priorities is it only gets implemented when there's a problem, like when the bus is three or five minutes late, because what you find is what people really care about with the bus is, is it, is it consistent in the time that it arrives? Can I rely on this bus? So that type of technology can give you incremental small improvements that isn't going to hold up traffic on other approaches, but enables that bus to just stay on schedule.
1: That's so so fascinating.
2: Yeah, those those systems now are GPS-based, so you can even anticipate, before it was based off of the bus was literally sending a message, you know, a visual, like a laser, essentially, to a receptor at an intersection. Well, the receptors go down, there's trees in the roadway. There's all kinds of things that can make that a problem, Yeah. but it can actually, based on the GPS system, can anticipate where the bus is and where it's going to be in space so that it can predictively change, you know, and, and for emergency vehicles, certainly it turns this green, this light green and the next one green because the fire engine needs to do that. It can't wait. There's really can be a huge safety improvement. Yeah.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. So is there anything else you'd like to add, just, I don't know, to projects that we haven't mentioned or any other issues that you think that are important to future
0: transportation in the city of Ithaca?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, just some of the other projects we're working on that you mentioned, University Ave, that's one that's, that's going on right now, because there's not only roadway issues there, you know, there's water issues, there's sewer issues, drainage issues, everybody knows. I mean, you don't have to be an expert, drive down University Ave, and you'll know that, yeah. it, you know, there's some things that could be better. There's, yeah, definitely. So so that project, you know, hopefully um, we don't have a timetable on it. It's a pretty expensive project, mm-hmm. uh, but everybody knows that, that we want to move it forward. So I know Mike Thorne and others are really thinking we're of strategic to ways it. to, yeah. yeah. And working with NISEG, some of those issues yep, have been complicating. So we're trying to work through those. It's
1: always complicated working with NYSEG. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and in this, I don't think it's their fault in this case. It's just, you know, what do you do with right. some utilities in order to make, try to get what we want um, as far as serving everybody, but also not disrupting, you know, neighborhoods, things like that. I think we're finding a solution that's actually going to accomplish both. Now, cool. um, other than that, you know, something we're doing is um, epoxy painting. You know, it's really important and a low cost thing to make sure the crosswalks are in good yes. shape and other things. So, definitely, um, so I'm glad so, you
0: mentioned that. Yeah, because we've gotten so many complaints about how they've eroded in just yeah. a single season.
2: Right. So something I'm trying to do right now working with, we have a sign shop that does uh, like a water-based paint and they do a lot of the intersections in the center line in the city. So I've tried to work with the sign shop to say, "Okay, what are the areas you think there's just too much traffic to do your kind of paint? It's not going to hold up. Where do we need to do epoxy paint?" Mm. And then to assess all that and put a value on it and then say, "Okay, based on how much money we have to do this, what kind of cycle are we on? Can we yeah. hit every location every 3 years, every 5 years?" Oh, that's awesome. You know, so we can be smarter about keeping those on a good cycle. Yeah. So that's something that's, you know, not terribly exciting, but incredibly important. It's really important. Very important.
1: I mean, it's, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people complain about the crosswalks. And just, you know, I you know not think Graham Kerslick, who's the alderman for the fourth ward, was trying to get the crosswalk painted at and Seneca's for like... It was years, you know, like, and just, and it's been a real struggle for the city, you know, Mm -hmm. like we've really struggled to get those painted on a a consistent basis. So I'm really glad to hear that that's happening.
2: Yeah. And we're working with the state on a bit of that too. Some of the state routes should be done this summer. They should be doing quite a lot of the crosswalks. So we've held off on some locations last year, knowing that they were going to be done by others so we could focus elsewhere. Um, other than that, you know, something that just keeps us busy. You know, everybody knows Ithaca is growing. There's a lot of new projects. So part of what we do in our office is review the site plans and really try to make sure that those locations are doing responsible things when it comes to the transportation system and giving people options to get to them safely. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: that really takes up a fair amount of time just because there are so many projects. These so days. you're
1: reviewing all of the development projects that, you are going through the site plan review process and the planning board and yeah. God, that's got to keep you busy. I that's mean, been, <laughs> a that's lot. been a big
2: part. Yeah. yeah. A very big part. And then other than that, um, you know, we're really trying to look at, I guess the other thing I feel really passionate about right now is looking at, you know, safety. There's nothing much more important than safety. And so we're starting to take a look, like uh, look at eight years worth of data, basically every crash that's happened in Ithaca in the last eight years which has been quite an effort to get the information, yeah. but we've got it. And now we're really trying to dig through and say, okay, can we find some patterns here? Can we find some ways to see where we could put our effort to really reduce the amount of, uh, crashes that involve injuries or fatalities first. So that's really something I feel really passionate about and interested in. So Kent and I have really been investing a fair amount of time with that, um, so I think more coming on that in upcoming months and years but um you know I'm just really hopeful through that process we can find some low cost ways to just put our money and our investments in places that'll you know save people not only money you know if you have a crash even if you don't get hurt that could be a really big financial burden on you yeah so that's that's just right. one thing Definitely. but then if you know if you're injured and it's life altering that's that's really huge so if we can be smarter about that Uh, then that's really going to serve the people of Ithaca well. Yeah,
1: for sure. Well, it sounds like you have a very busy plate. (laughs) You're
0: doing a lot. As busy as you may feel, I think we're lucky that there's a lot going on in this city that is vibrant and that there's changes for the better constantly happening. The people seem to appreciate it. I know I do.
1: Yeah, and I know that our constituents, I mean, especially in this latest round of the announcement with the, the traffic calming, a lot of those projects were in the second ward, and I just want to yeah. give a shout out for that because, Absolutely. well, that's our district. That's, that's right. <laughs> I know I mean, our constituents are very happy about some yeah, of those. Exactly. Sure.
0: Well, I mean, Steph, like you mentioned, the traffic calming program, and Steph and I have worked with multiple people who you know to fill out these these applications, yep. or these you know these surveys.
1: and it's great that that process is there, you know, it's like you just you go to your neighbors and you you do the petition and then you submit it to the engineering office, and hey, it gets funded. I mean, that's pretty cool, you know, and it's and, and a lot of these, I mean, I, I gotta give a shout out to the the court street those, the raised intersections, Washington park. I mean, that neighborhood has been calling for that the entire time I've been on common council, which has been, it's like six years. So, I mean, this is really cool that this stuff is finally happening. So I really appreciate your work.
2: Sure. And again, I would, I would really um, give a lot of credit to Kent again, Kent Johnson our office. He's a really skilled draft person in, in addition to all the other things he does. And he's really doing a lot of that design right now himself, so that we can use contractors that are doing other work in the city to get that done in a way that it would be really difficult to do otherwise. So, yeah, you know, really trying to be creative to to get the most value out of those dollars we're using for the traffic calming program. Cool.
1: Well, thank you. This has been a great conversation. Thank you very much. Well, I appreciate you guys. You're great
2: to work with, and, and you really um, helped to connect me with the community in a way that would be tough for me to do without you. And so I really appreciate it. I can tell that you guys are passionate about the people that you represent um, and really respectful about everything you do. So I really appreciate that a lot. Thank you. Thanks very much, Eric.